New Year, same us. I heard that this week. Uh, a lot of cultural pressure seems to come with the new year. It's a time to turn over a new leaf, you know, chart a new course, resolve if you're so daring to do new things, be a new person, cultivate new habits, exercise new disciplines in a variety of ways. The new year does really bring an opportunity for reflection. It brings an opportunity uh, to take some inventory. It brings an opportunity for potential hope, at least externally. Of course, all these things are cultural cues and driven by culture outside of us. There's also some adrenaline within us that drives some of these resolutions, some of these new thoughts, some of these new hopes, new patterns, new disciplines. A little bit of the juxtaposition and problem with a lot of these new things is we're tired. It's interesting that January comes after what month? December. Arguably the most exhausting month of the year. And so in many ways, I wonder if you, like me for sure, feel like what Hemingway wrote in The Old Man in the Sea. After fighting the fish so long, he exclaims that he is tired on the inside. Of course, he's tired on the outside, but he says that he is tired on the inside. I assume that you, once again, like me, are tired on the inside. In many ways, the new year brings an opportunity where my spirit is willing, but my flesh feels weak because I'm tired. I'm tired on the inside. I think we live in a culture that is tired on the inside. And of course, it manifests itself on the outside as well. Why? Why are we so tired? One theologian and preacher said, when we look at the world, we see that people are exceedingly busy. It is their affections that keep them busy. If we were to take away their affections, the world would be motionless and dead. There would be, so, there would be no such thing as activity. It is the affection that we call covetousness that moves a person to seek worldly profits. It is the affection that we call ambition that moves a person to pursue worldly glory. It is the affection we call lust that moves a person to pursue sensual delights. Just as worldly affections are the spring of worldly actions, so the religious affections are the spring of religious actions. When we look at the world, we see that people are exceedingly busy. Written in the early 1700s by the great Jonathan Edwards. But that's indicative of us today as well, is it not? Our passage today speaks about the very things that Edwards was speaking of. Our affections, our emotions, and potentially an invitation to move against the weariness 
and busyness that pervades our lives and our culture. Stand with me, if you will, as we look at the passage this morning from Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It seems that we could say that life is nothing but one big and many small decisions. We're faced with decisions every day, even every moment. Even at this moment, you're having to decide whether you agree with my premise or not that life is full of decisions. You can decide whether you agree with that premise. We can't get away from decisions. Decisions pervade our life, whether we like it or not. We oftentimes make so many, in fact, most of our decisions subconsciously without even thinking about it. And then, of course, there are many other times where we make very conscientious decisions. Once again, coming off the holidays, coming off last month, many decisions were made over the last month in many different areas, but it seems that we could hone in on two areas where decisions were frequently being made in the areas of, and this is alliterated, Purchasing and packing, right? This really reveals things about us. It's amazing. I don't know if people have done this. Surely they have done personality studies on how people make purchases. Of course, the internet today has made this a little bit easier for us. We can compare items in a nice, neat, graphically displayed spreadsheet automatically for us. Of course, back in the day, many of you, or at least half of you, let's say, depending on your personality type, used to do your own version of that. In fact, some of you are still purists, and you do your own version of that. A handwritten spreadsheet that's pros and cons or categorizing all kinds of different things, trying to make the right decision on a particular purchase. And of course, the bigger the item, the bigger the decision is. If you're buying a new car, there's a lot more that goes into that decision than buying a simple stocking stuffer for one of your children, right? What drives your decisions? There are many things that can drive our decisions. When I think about myself with regard to purchasing, it's as if I have buyer's remorse before I even make a purchase. I obsess seemingly incessantly, no matter how big or small, I make no distinction between macro and micro when it comes to purchasing um, as far as all the toil and labor that is put into the decision on what I'm going to purchase. But then let's take the other idea, packing. This reveals a lot about people's personality as well, right? When you pack, how early you pack, what you pack. And that's really what I want to think about for a moment. How do you decide what you pack 
when you go on a trip. Now, of course, it matters whether you're driving or whether you're flying. That's really constraining for me because I'm an overpacker and an obsessive and perfectionistic. And so when I drive, I can pretty much bring all that I want. When I fly, it's very stressful. (laughs) Trying to make the decisions because there's so many things that I could possibly need. But when you pack, you really do have to start to answer the question. And this is true when you have to purchase as well. What is actually necessary? And when you fly, once again, you have to make that decision a little deeper when you, if you're going to check a bag and if you're going to carry on a bag, because that which bag that you, you put in your carry-on bag is really what is necessary, like your medicine and maybe a different outfit for one day and a few other things, because that's really what decisions are longing for, are, are leading us to is deciding what is actually necessary. Well, Luke 10 is a passage about decisions. Mary and Martha each have a decision as they are literally, physically engaged with and confronted with Jesus, the Messiah, at this point. They have a decision to make. Martha chooses one way, Mary chooses another way, and Jesus leaves no doubt which one we are to be more sympathetic to. Jesus just says, Mary has chosen that which is right, that which is better. What Martha is doing is fine, good, not sinful, but what Mary has chosen is better. In fact, what Mary has chosen outlines for us the overarching principle of this passage. Jesus says only one thing is necessary. Out of all the decisions that we make in life, out of the many decisions that come our way, out of the many distractions that exist in our lives, Luke 10 says, really out of all things, only one thing really matters. One thing is necessary. And Jesus actually does not explicitly answer what the one thing is in Luke 10 But it seems to me to be implicitly obvious that the one thing that is necessary is connecting with Him. And of all the other decisions that we make in life, out of all the other things that we do in life, what matters the most? What is of utmost necessity? Being with Christ. That's what Luke 10 says tells us. In fact, it even distinguishes in an interesting way that being with Christ is better than simply being around Christ. That loving Jesus is better than serving Jesus, at least according to Luke 10. And of course, we are called to serve Him. But it's so interesting how singular And simple, the focus is in Luke 10. One thing. Luke 10 is about one thing. And the one thing that Luke 10 is about is one thing being necessary. And that is being with Christ. Connecting to Christ. And this story really begins this series that we're going to look at the next three weeks for us. We'll use different passages 
But we're going to take the next three weeks and look at what it really means to rest in God. In many ways, what I'm seeking to do in the next three weeks is to buck a cultural trend that incites within us at this time of year even more busyness, which leads to more weariness. And what I want us to do in Luke 10 today and then over the next few weeks with a couple other passages is to simply stop and to focus and to think about one thing. Don't you long for your life to be more simple? You see, it's so easy for us to not connect to Christ. I mean, if connecting with Christ is the one main thing from Luke 10, it's important for us to consider before we get into a little more detail of what it looks like to actually connect with Christ, is what stops us from connecting with Jesus on a deeper level. Is it our sin? Or what about the shame that we carry from our sin? We can't connect with Christ because we have concluded Christ can't love me, from which I understand last week Matt Howell unpackaged the notion of that idea that God can't forgive me because I'm too bad is actually not real humility, but it's actually pride. And so our pride and our shame and our sin keeps us from connecting with Christ. Maybe our skepticism, which is valid for believers and unbelievers. Skepticism can stop one connecting with Christ. Maybe religion. Interesting. Maybe religion that's not the gospel can keep us from actually connecting intimately and relationally with Christ. Surely, as we've already alluded to, but let's look at in a little more detail here for a moment, busyness keeps us from connecting with Christ. Mark Buchanan in his book called The Rest of God, which I would highly commend to you, it's, the, um, it's what provoked the title of this series. It's a book um, that is without question one of the most five formative books that I've ever read in my life. I would highly recommend the book to you, Mark Buchanan, The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. He says, there's a terrible cost to our busyness. Among other things, it erodes memory. Busyness destroys the time we need to remember well. In the confusion, we forget who we are. Have you forgotten who you are? The Swahili word for white man literally means one who spins around. Someone who wonders without purpose. Someone constantly on the move. That's how East Africans see Westerners, turning ourselves dizzy with a great whirl of motion without direction. We're flurries going nowhere. Did you know that there's a resurgence right now technologically in the flip phone? I don't know if we've had any adopters that are in here. Um, We probably don't quite have uh, the quotient of hipsters uh, among us right now. 
uh, to be able to have a large degree of flip phone adopters. I bet there's a lot of flip phones right now in Brooklyn this morning. But regardless, flip phones are on the rise, uh, actually, among hipster millennials and others as well. Why? For simplicity, right? For one thing versus many things. There's actually pretty extensive psychological studies being done right now on technological advices or devices that are leading to a lack of productivity in massive ways, that are leading to heightened fear and anxiety in diagnosable ways. In many ways, whether we literally want to do this or not, there's something within us that is longing for simplicity. There's something within us that is longing for necessity. There's something within our hearts that wants a flip phone, not a smartphone. There's actually a group of computer science students at Stanford University that's working on an appeal right now to Apple for them to create a mode on the iPhone that is called the essential mode, where with the flip of a switch, you can go into a mode where it only does the necessities. Calling, texting, maps, photos. Seems like a good idea to me on a technological standpoint, but our purpose this morning is not technological. Our purpose this morning is spiritual. And let's get back to this idea of simplicity and the one thing that Luke 10 is calling us to, which is to connect with Christ. From Luke 10, how can we connect with Christ more deeply? I think Luke 10 is calling us to stop. Number one, is calling us to be still. Number two, and calling us to be secure. Number three, we can connect with Christ more deeply. We can avail ourselves to this one thing that is necessary, according to Luke 10, by being still, or by stopping, by being still and being secure. It's hard to miss in the passage that these two women, who both know Jesus well, and it would be important to note that it is Martha's house, before we completely throw her under the bus here, it's not easy having people in your house, right? Uh, It's not easy entertaining. It's not easy to distinguish the line, particularly if you're Southern, between hospitality and entertainment. And so Martha, it's her house, and... To concede something else we know, Martha was older, right? And older siblings, older children tend to just carry a little more of a burden, period. And she does here. But we can't miss their reactions are very different. Jesus comes in, which once again, quick side note, he was normal. Jesus was normal. He was a real man who had real relationships, who came over to Mary and Martha's house just to be, just to hang out, just to drop in, just to grab a drink, and to be with him, which is pretty fascinating just as a side comment. But these two women react differently to Jesus stopping by. Martha gets busy, and Mary stops. Martha is around Jesus, but not with Jesus. And Mary stops to do what? To sit at the Lord's feet. 
When people are busy, working hard, they don't like people that are not. And Martha can't hide her irritation. She goes as far, I think this would be accurate to say, to try at least to rebuke Jesus. It's amazing. She works herself up in such an anxious, busy frenzy Then to see Mary, her little sister, simply just stopping and sitting at Jesus' feet, that she's so irritated, she tries to provoke Jesus by rebuking him, so he will rebuke Mary. Interestingly enough, his response is very gentle and very tender to Martha's incitement and to her rebuke. But what we see in the story, Mary is connecting with Jesus by stopping. Because she is not, at the moment, distracted by so many things. So let's get practical for a moment. How are we going to connect with Christ? Which, by the way, I don't know what your resolutions or goals are in 2019, but if we want to just be simple about it, this would be a good one. In 2019... I resolve to connect more deeply with Jesus. In fact, I'll even give you a simple barometer for growth at the end of 2019. And it has nothing to do with how many boxes you checked on your spiritual disciplines, how much you wrote in your journal, how many Bible studies you were a part of. All those disciplines are good and right things. But here's a barometer for growth in the Christian life. Do you love Christ more now than you did? Do you see your need for Him more now than you did. Peter tells us in the New Testament to grow in grace, and J.I. Packer helps us to understand that growing in grace is simply growing in the need or the awareness we have for God's grace. So here's a barometer for growth in 2019 that could be a goal. What if you prayed that by the end of 2019, you would have a deeper sense of your need for God's grace, which would actually in a reciprocal way, lead to a deeper love and appreciation for who Christ is. That'd be a good goal. But in order to achieve that goal, by God's grace, guess what we have to do? Stop. And assess. Take inventory. On the many things, as the text tells us, And this is not us psychologizing this text. I mean, the text literally says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Once again, he answered her very gently and graciously, which tells us a lot about the character of Christ. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Stop. What are you anxious and troubled about? Your job? Your house? Your portfolio? Your kids' activities? What distracts you? Social media? TV? People's perception of you? Are you anxious about money? Appearance? Family? relationships, the state of our country and culture, anxious and troubled, Jesus says, stop 
be still. And let's look at this idea of stillness. So not only does Mary stop, but Mary practices stillness as she sits at the Lord's feet. And guess what she does? Listens. You can't listen if you don't stop and if you're not still. Stillness, silence, and solitude is something that I would argue are necessary ingredients to connecting with Christ. You can't really know Jesus without being still, without cultivating solitude and silence. And what's my primary example of that? Mm, I don't know. Jesus himself? Regularly, the New Testament tells us, would withdraw to desolate places to connect with the Father. And just for fun, let's ask this question. If Jesus needed to do that, if Jesus needed to cultivate stillness and solitude and silence, how much more do we need to do that? I know it scares us. Stillness is hard. Guess what happens when you're quiet and still? At least for me, oftentimes I feel sad. But solitude actually gives us an invitation. Marilyn Robinson so beautifully in her novel, Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, who's written from the perspective of a pastor who's dying to his son. This pastor, John Ames, speaks about preparing sermons and he would go into his study to prepare sermons. And then he says in the text, when I would do that, I never knew that solitude would be such a balm for loneliness. Did you catch that? I never knew that solitude would be such a balm for loneliness. The reason that that's so genius is it's counterintuitive. Because solitude seems to incite loneliness. But what Marilyn Robinson picks up on, and I think what Mary picks up on, at least here even though she's with Jesus, is that stillness that leads to silence, that allows listening, that oftentimes is practiced in solitude, even though our text is not in solitude, brings about a real balm for our loneliness. God's people have always had a problem with this. In Isaiah chapter 30, Tell me if this sounds familiar. I'll read the first two verses of Isaiah 30, and then I'll read the 15th verse of Isaiah 30, which very well might be, for what it's worth, my favorite verse in Scripture. Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan that's not my plan, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in rest, in repentance, is your salvation. In rest, in repentance, is your salvation. In quietness and trust, is your strength. We've got to realize how countercultural that is. But this is the way that God made us, and this is the way that God made the world. Practically speaking, 
How can we be still? You can't without eliminating things from your life. I'm not here to prescribe what is to be eliminated from your life. I'm just here to tell you that if you could practice stillness with everything on your calendar and plate right now, then you would be. But my guess is you're not and you don't, just like me. And it's my job, by the way. I'm paid to be still. I'm paid to pray. And I make no bones about that. One of my friends says, ministers are paid to be close to God. And I confess that there's at times, if that's true, then I shouldn't get paid. I can thankfully say that's not consistently true. But I'm telling you this. If you want to cultivate and practice stillness in your life, it will not happen without the elimination and the removal of something or some things in order to create space. Also, you have to accept that stillness is a discipline. I know we want stillness to be spontaneous. I don't know exactly how to say this without, I want to be appropriate. Let me just say this. The longer you're married, and let's say that you are seeking to cultivate important intimacy with your spouse, you realize if you're going to cultivate that important intimacy, you know, that only happens in private places, you basically have to schedule it. You have to be disciplined, as odd and counterintuitive as it sounds. Because if you wait on it being spontaneous, Paul Miller says in the praying life, you don't create intimacy. You don't create intimacy. You make room for it. This is true whether you're talking about your spouse, your friend, or God. You need space to be together. Get this. Efficiency, multitasking, and busyness all kill intimacy. In short, you can't get to know God on the fly. Therefore, we must be still. If we want to avail ourselves to this one thing... This one thing, which is connecting with Christ in a deep way, the one thing that matters more above all many things. We've got to stop. We've got to be still. And then the last point is we've got to be secure. What do I mean by be secure? I mean this. It took a certain security and connection that already existed with Christ that Mary had in the face of her older sister, in her older sister's home, to ignore her. I'm convinced that we cannot truly cultivate an intimate, deep relationship with Christ if we are incessantly consumed with others' needs and demands. Even those loved ones that live under the same roof as we do. We've got to be secure enough in Christ by His grace to ignore other people in a loving way. To not care so much that Martha is in the kitchen mad at us. To have sympathy towards her, but to have resolve and security that no, 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 no. 
this is the one thing. This is all that matters. I love you, Martha. And you have a lot of Marthas. But you need to know this. I am loved by Christ more. Therefore, I desire to love Him more than even you. And it takes gospel security to ignore the tension and the interference that we're going to get from others. Not even to mention the tension and the interference that we get from the culture at large. Another aspect of security that we see here in this passage, and this is so interesting. Where Mary is, is not where she's supposed to be. Culturally. Why? Simply because she's a woman. And in their culture, women were not to be with men in any main living area of the house. In fact, the only place in their culture where a woman was to be with a man was behind closed doors in the bedroom. Who does Mary think she is? She's in a public or open space of the house with a man. And not only with a man, she's sitting at his feet. And to be very clear here, she's not sitting at his feet as if she is a fan of his. She's sitting at his feet as a student of his. And guess what? In their day, women were not students of rabbis. But Mary, in her security, through her connecting with Christ, because she knew this, Jesus tears down barriers. And that really is the good news in conclusion. That if the one thing that matters most is to connect with Christ, yet we have these seemingly insurmountable barriers that exist between us and Christ, then what are we going to do? And this text really does call us to application. It calls us to stop. It calls us to be still. And it calls us to be secure. But ultimately our hope is not in us stopping, in us being still, and in us being secure. Ultimately our hope to be able to achieve and to experience this one thing is not us tearing down the distractions and the barriers that exist between us and Christ. But the good news is that Christ has torn down the barriers that exists between us and Him. And that He is wooing us, and He is calling us, and He is providing a space for us to sit at His feet, to be still, to stop, to ignore others, to ignore cultural norms, to sit and to receive. We can't really miss this, can we? We can't miss the gospel in this. Luke 10 is a proclamation that the gospel is more about who you are than what you do. And I particularly want to speak to my non-Christian friends that are here. I'm sorry that many in the church have sought to convince you that Christianity is primarily about what you do. It's not. In fact, Jesus lovingly, gently rebukes Martha here for doing. And he embraces Mary for what? For being. The economy of the gospel is being proceeds and supersedes doing. 
And Christianity is distinctive among all other religions in that way, by the way. All other religions are precipitated upon doing. Buddha's last words, never cease striving. Christ's last words, tetelestai. It is finished. God is teaching me quietness of heart. I didn't realize it until I started experiencing how clamorous and anxious my heart generally is. Inside, I'm a schemer. A constant chattering goes on in my head. I mutter to myself like Gollum. But as I quiet down, my heart does as well. Quietness allows room for God to speak or to be silent. Both are gifts. Quietness stops crowding the Holy Spirit, elbowing aside God's gentle presence. The end of striving, Mark Buchanan says, makes room for dwelling. Stop striving. Dwell. It's the only thing that matters. Close us in prayer. Father, thank you for this narrative. Thank you for this story. Thank you for these women that are really normal. In fact, Jesus, thank you for being normal to a certain degree especially in a story like this. We pray that you would draw us to yourself. We pray that you would help us courageously. We need your grace to do this, to take inventory, to take stock of our lives, of our hearts, of our minds, to confess freely and openly that we're too busy, we're too distracted. And we need to be still and quiet so we can connect. We pray that you would give us that gift. In Christ's name we pray, amen.